You know the cool thing about dreams? Dreams are yours. You get to define them. They might be inspired by someone else or someone else's success or someone else's dream come true. You decide what you want to accomplish and how you want to impact the world. And when you take your talents and put them to use for good, you're going to make a difference. We're going to talk with Emmy-winning composer Silas Height next. is on. Let's get cooking. This is Purpose Under Pressure. We're sharing stories of kind of why we're here and how we fight to make those things happen. It's not always easy. And if you like this show enough to listen, if you're here right now, it means you like it. I want you to tell a friend. I want you to follow. I want you to subscribe. Anything like that can let other people know that we're out here doing this thing. I think it's important. It lets other people kind of know that this show might be worth a listen as well. So if you don't mind, a quick follow, a quick like, uh, or tell a friend. All of those work. Purpose Under Pressure is brought to you in partnership with Sandler by the Ruby Group. They're serving sales professionals and managers nationwide, uh, working in Akron and Columbus, also in Jacksonville, Florida. You know, selling is an art. I think it's the most important thing that any business can do. You need to generate that opportunity and they do it right and they do it on purpose. And that's why they're partners with the show. Sandler by the Ruby Group. You can check them out online at therubygroup.sandler.com. One of the funnest things for me in life is meeting new people. And one of the great things that this podcast allows me to do is meet new people. And through other people, I meet new people. And it's interesting how those folks all seem to have a dream or a common goal or a common vision for what they want their life to be. And it's always based in purpose. And it's just that God has put me in the spot where I can meet these really interesting folks. And you're about to meet one today. His name is Silas Height. You may not know the name, but the music industry does. And he is a Emmy-winning composer, musician. Uh, he has been serving the music, music world for over 20 years. He started, and we're going to talk about it a little bit, with his uncles that you may know from Whippet fame, which is Devo right here in Ohio. So uh, we're excited to talk with Silas Height today on Purpose Under Pressure. Silas, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you. You know, I, I talked with your cousin about a year ago, half a year ago, Al Mothersbaugh, and he's selling glass services and things like that. And he's just killing it and loving life, serving people. And it's interesting, this cousin's doing the same thing in a very different way, but with the same purpose. Do you relate a little bit to Al? Because he is a character. When I remember right. Oh, definitely. Yeah, he's one of my favorite people. I love Al. And uh, he's a heck of a musician himself. He plays trombone. and He plays a lot of instruments, actually. But um, I always rope him into my projects and trying to get him, try to get him to play trombone or write horn parts for me and stuff like that, because he's just super fun to work with and has amazing energy. And he you know, plays in like multiple bands. And yeah. Uh, yeah, just a real force. And I listened to that interview that you did with him. It was really good. It was fun, wasn't it? You, you know, yeah. the thing about musicians, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong, but I just feel like musicians, you have to overcome so much to make a living doing what you love because everyone wants to do it, right? We all want to be, at least I used to want to be a rock star. I wanted to be, I was a musician, but I didn't, I didn't follow that path in my life. I can play drums pretty well, nice, but I didn't make a li I can make a living out of, it. I gave that up. So purpose under pressure, pressure one, but here you are. And Al talks about being a musician here. You are making a difference and making a living and, and, and making an impact with music. And I think that is full of purpose. And I'd like you, Sally, if you can talk to me a little bit about what your purpose is, what you're trying to accomplish in life and how you're doing it with music, kind of brag about yourself a little bit because you've done some great things. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, 
Yeah, for the past 20 years, I've been writing music for um, films and TV shows and video games and commercials and even podcasts and, um, you know, theme songs and the music that's on when people are talking, you know, behind that. Um, sometimes it's, you know, that's known as score, mm -hmm. but sometimes I do write songs as well, like you would, you know, you might hear on the radio or something. Um, usually it's for a movie or a TV show, um, but I also do it on my own and make albums. Um, and it's, you know, it's gone pretty well. I've worked with, you know, top names in all of those industries in terms of like, you know, uh, for commercials, Apple, Chevy, Google, Toyota, McDonald's, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I co I wrote some music for some big films with my uncle when I worked with, uh, him, Mark Mothersbaugh and Bob Mothersbaugh, as you mentioned from Devo, mm -hmm. the beginning of my career, and then have continued to do films since then. And, uh, lots of big TV shows. And, um, yeah, and big video games and I just, you know, keep, keep cracking away at it. And, uh, I love doing it. I love the collaboration of working with a director and trying to achieve their vision, but also bringing my creativity to it and my experience and, um, and seeing what kind of things we can make together, see if we can make the initial thing even better through collaboration. So is this something that you, Silas, always wanted to do? Did you always want to write scores, which you're doing now? Did you want to do something? Did you want to be a rock star following the steps <laughs> of your of your famous uncles? Did, what did you always want and what did you end up and what was that path like along the way? Can you share that? When I was younger, you know, I was drawn to music, um, studied music when I was 11. I studied jazz drums and then began picking up other instruments along the way in high school and learning. And then in college studied music. And I realized that it wasn't going to be enough to be good at music, that there's, you know, more to it in terms of sustaining a career. And so I also studied business and I studied art because I thought all of those skills would help support what I wanted to do, even though I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. I mean, I knew, you know, being a rock star is like winning the lottery or something. It's not very likely. Um, but, I, I liked me, I liked music because there's so many different facets to it. You can play an instrument and you, you know, you could be in an orchestra, you could be a session player that plays on movie scores. Um, you could be an audio engineer who's recording bands or recording live shows or things like that. Um, you could be a producer helping people bring their songs to life and, you know, make them as good as possible. There's all these different avenues. And so in college, I just studied as much as I could the different things that you could do and just learned all of it. Cause it all feeds into each other. And I started eliminating things like when I figured out, okay, I don't want to do that. And so uh, right away I, I realized like I'm not a virtuoso musician, so I'm probably not going to be a session player that also mixed with, I don't actually enjoy playing other people's music that much. I never really liked learning other pieces of music or, or covering other people's songs that much. Like it just wasn't that interesting to me unless I could twist it and make it my own. And so I thought, well, I, you know, I'm probably not going to be a performer, like a playing someone else's tunes or whatever. Maybe I should focus on the creative part because that's what I seem to like. And so that sort of led me after a while to being a composer. Now, mm -hmm. I also played in bands outside of school and, you know, I still will play in bands from time to time and have over the years. Um, but I realized I didn't like playing the same songs over and over and over again, even if I had written them or I was really fond of them. And so I realized I didn't really want to be in a band that seemed like I would get bored with it. Um, also just because I'm attracted to so many styles of music, I was like, I would either have to have 50 different bands playing different styles or, um, 
you know, one band that plays 50 different styles or something. And yeah. it just didn't seem like the way to go. But I figured if I was a composer, I could really dive into, you know, different styles of music and, and production styles and genres and things like that. And so that led me to wanting to be a composer. Yeah. And it's interesting how all of us have a certain skill, a certain superpower, and it might not be the greatest. I might not be the best at everything, but there's a place for me, right? If I stick mm -hmm. to my purpose, I can find something. I'm interested in Europe come, growing up with Devo. Here, you want to be a musician and you're hanging around with Uncle Mark and Uncle Bob, who are oh. some of the most, uh, you know, the song they wrote, Whip It, and they've mm -hmm. done many others, but they're very successful. Did they, when you said, Uncle Bob, Uncle Mark, I want to be a musician, did they say, no, you don't? Or did they say, yes, you do? How did they lead you to well, become kind of what you're doing now? I wouldn't say I grew up with them. I mean, I would see them from time to time at family stuff. Okay. But but I was living in Arizona in a very small, remote mountain town, and they were in Los Angeles. And the rest of our family was in Ohio and Pennsylvania. And so, you know, I wouldn't really see them that often or have that much contact with them. And if I did, it was like, you know, holiday type stuff or not like we weren't really talking about my future career or anything like okay. that. All right. Um, although we were close and they were, you know, super sweet uncles for sure. But then when I got older, but I think like I was aware of them and I was aware of their career and their, you know, what they were doing in terms of not only putting out records, but scoring things as well. They're both composers yeah. have done really well. And um, so I think it was impactful to know that, okay, that's a path that exists for someone who's not entirely different, you know, unlike me. I mean, we're related, right. you know, I could, um, so I could see it was kind of possible. And then I think a, just as big an influence would be my, my dad's a musician and was constantly playing music around the house and playing music for me and you know, pointing out things in the music and things like that. My mom was really into music as well. And, um, she would pick up instruments and play them sometimes. Um, and my dad and I actually took drum lessons together when I first started, I would take oh, a wow. lesson and then he would take a lesson after it. Um, so I think it was both of those influences, parents and the uncles. But then when I got, you know, I went through college and wanted to be a composer. Um, I reached out to my uncle, right, you know, before graduation and said, Hey, Mark, you know, you've got this studio in LA. I would like to do what you're doing. Is there any chance you could, you know, you have a job for me there? And he was like, Oh, I don't think that's a good idea. You know? <laughs> and he was like, uh, you know, we're not, we don't really bring in people. I haven't hired anyone in a really long time. And, you know, hiring family is always a little dicey and, you know, he's really nice about it, but he wasn't really that encouraging. And I said, okay, you know, no problem, but I am moving out there when I graduate and I'm going to figure this out one way or the other. So I came out and I met with him in person and I, I gave him my, I created this, I guess, resume type thing that was totally suited to him. It was made out of metal. I crafted it with my architecture friends. It was made out of metal that matched his glasses. Nice. The, the, the bright green matched his studio, the bright orange of the, of the, um, the back of the thing matched the chair he was sitting in when I handed it to him. Like I knew his aesthetic and I knew he was an artist and I had my music in it and what I'd studied and stuff. And, and he listened politely to the music, you know, and I'm, I'm sure it was very amateurish and not up to par really, but he was nice enough and he recognized the drive and he was like, all right, I'll give you a shot. I'll give you a shot. You can be an intern for a little while and we'll see how it goes. Okay. And so I forget maybe, maybe give me six months or something like that. And anyway, long story short, I worked my tail off and uh, he ended up giving me a job there and pretty soon gave me opportunities to try scoring little things. And that went from commercials to TV show to scenes for films, video games. And 
And then I ended up being there for about seven or eight years as a full-time composer. And then I left and went freelance and have been doing it on my own for the last about 14 years now. So let's talk about that. You do that for seven years. You're working with your, your famous uncles and they're helping you along. You could have been very satisfied there and helped to grow that even more and done your mm -hmm. thing, but you went off on your own. What's the thought mm -hmm. process there of going out on my own and how hard is that? Is that kind of where the pressure starts to build in on your purpose? <laughs> yeah, that was probably, I would say the first initial pressure in my career was like, okay, I have to figure out how to do this job and mm. do it well because I had the creative impulses and the ideas, but I wasn't good at executing them, like the production and the mixing and stuff sounded like, you know, like I didn't know what I was doing because I was young and didn't. And so I really buckled down and learned as much as I could of that stuff on the job, reading and asking the older guys there and things like that. And then, yeah, when I left, that was a huge pressure point because it was during the recession of 2010. Yeah. And there weren't many jobs even coming into his studio. And, you know, I was going out on my own. It was a tough time to do it, but it also just felt like the right time. Like I felt like I couldn't really get any further um, working there. Like I was already at the top of what I could do. And I probably could have stayed there. The guys that I was working with at the time are still there and doing the mm -hmm. same thing and doing a great job. And they're happy there and they, they like it. And I, I got along great with everyone there and, and my uncles. And like, it was a lovely situation, but just felt like I had hit a ceiling, you know, and, um, and I just wanted to make a name for myself. And so that when, when people asked me to write something, they were asking for what I thought I should do rather than what I would do through the lens of working at someone else's studio, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. I always had to keep Mark's um, sensibilities in mind when I was writing, which wasn't hard because we had a lot of crossover and interests and instruments and things, fortunately, but so it was a big challenge. I left there, left on good terms. And he was like, you're going to do great. Go get them. But the hard part was I didn't have any clients because when I was working at his studio, they were all his clients. And sure. so I couldn't leave there and, you know, take the clients. I wouldn't do that. So I had to find new clients. Now, fortunately, I did have a resume, you know, that said I worked on all these big films, TV shows, whatnot. And so I had to hustle and get that in front of as many people as possible and get them to pay attention. And when they would, they'd say, oh, you know, I don't know your name, but I know these clients that you've worked with, you know, Sony and Columbia and EA and Google and things like that. Maybe I'll give you a chance. And so yeah. that's sort of how it started. It was just a lot of hustle once I got out of there. Was there ever a time where you kind of wish you can go back under the, the comfortable umbrella of what your uncles had <laughs> built? Did you ever kind of think you made the yeah. wrong choice? Oh, no, I don't think I ever think I made the wrong choice, but I think I really miss the camaraderie of working with other people that are so into this very specific thing, writing music, right. And writing music for film, television, et cetera. Uh, it's a very specific thing that I don't have many people I can even talk to about it. And um, it was just a godsend to have these more experienced people that I was working with to be able to get their opinions on my mixes, how to make it better. And we would play on each other's tracks. Like I would play drums on, you know, a composer's track and he would play a saxophone on mine or things like that. You know, we would help each other with instruments that the other didn't play. And, um, I really miss that a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I, I like being my own boss. I like setting my own hours and working at my pace. Um, so I, I don't feel like, feel like it was a mistake. One of the things that entrepreneurs tell me when I talk to them about making the next step and doing the next thing is they say, yeah, I have a great idea, but someone's already doing it. 
I'd like to do that, but there's someone already doing it. Well, in this day and age, there's a hundred thousand people doing it. Everyone's online and we're all doing our things and it keeps people from doing things. And I'm interested. You're in LA and you're leaving a studio that is established and you're on your own without a name. How do you build your name or how, how, how hard was it to actually rise above enough to create a job when everybody down the road is trying to do the exact same thing you're doing? Yeah, it was very hard. Um, <laughs> thankfully, I had seven years of really intense experience under my belt, which was probably more like 20 years in most people's careers. Like there was just so much packed in there. I mean, it would be commercial in the morning, a TV scene due at 10, a film scene due at noon, a video game track due at the end of the day. Like every day was just yeah. really intense. Um, but it was very tough. And I think. I just scrambled and kept at it. And what I would have piece of advice I would give that worked for me is when I would get a job, I would just do everything I could to ensure that that person would want to come back to me. Because one thing I learned with business is it's easier to keep customers than get new customers all the time. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the people I work with are, I don't think of them as customers because we've worked together for a long time. So I think of them as friends, most of them. Yeah. And they're, I just really try and kill it for them every time so that they want to come back and they don't want to go, you know, find somebody else because there are a million composers in the sea. Yeah. Everybody's doing it. You know, you've won an Emmy. So you've, uh, you've accomplished certain things that others haven't done. Was that a goal or was that just something that happened that you built upon? Did it tell you that you have arrived? Like, what was it like to win the Emmy and how have you used that to move forward? I think that it probably helps if people read that to take me more seriously, perhaps, and read the rest of the bio or whatever, and maybe hire me for something. Um, other than that, I, I, I'm not in love with the whole award thing. I think it's, it's often sort of a scam. When I was first nominated for my first Emmy was a nomination for, I did a score for a cartoon called Shaggy and Scooby-Doo Get a Clue. And there's been many iterations of the Scooby-Doo cartoon over the years. And um, this was a long time ago. I worked on it, but it was super fun. It was great, hilarious cartoon. And I was nominated and I was probably, you know, 23 or something, 24 at the time, something like that. And uh, I got the invitation to go to the awards ceremony and I found out it was $400 per ticket if I wanted to go. So $800 for my date and I, and I was just flabbergasted. And I was like, what? Like you, I'm nominated, but I have to pay like, almost, wow. you know, I'll probably at the end of the night, spend a grand to go to this thing. And I was like, what a racket, what a hustle, you know, Yeah, money grab. Yeah. And I, I was just kind of turned off by the whole thing. And I didn't win uh, Sesame street ended up winning that one. But, um, as my uncle predicted, he was like, you don't need to go Sesame street's going to win. <laughs> yeah, You're not going to beat Sesame street. Okay. <laughs> yeah, He was right. But, uh, but anyway, um, yeah, I, I'm not too into that whole thing. I mean, awards are nice, but it's really just nice for me. I see it as a way to hopefully potentially get more work and for people to take you seriously. I'd prefer them to just listen to the music and say, wow, he knows what he's doing. This is great. But, you know, it does help in that, in that way. One of the biggest problems we have as managers and leaders is sometimes we're not focusing on leading and we end up doing it for our sales team. How do we coach our people to help them figure out what self-limiting belief that they have that's holding them back from achieving the levels of success that they know they're capable of? Help them flush out what we call their own head trash, that thing that's holding them back. So work with your team, lead by example, watch your team achieve greater levels of success and watch your team grow and more importantly watch your company and your business grow
and and just real quickly, I've always wondered this, and I I hope this doesn't sound offensive because I don't mean it to. I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> and, and okay. Joe, but jingles and uh, scores and things that aren't on the Billboard 100, like you mentioned, everybody wants to grow up be a rock star. Mm-hmm. You're doing the background music. You're doing the unknown things. You're doing the lesser, right? At least mm-hmm. that's what maybe other people with big dreams think. I know in New York City, everybody wants to be a big star and they end up waiting tables until they can be a big star. But other people are just grinding it out and working. And I find value in that. Do you do do people look at you differently? Do you wish you were other than a background music composer like or do you find real value in it i hope that's the case but i'm interested in how you see that yeah i love doing it and frankly when i meet people who are in bands and they've had some success or what they they want to do what i'm doing is that because right because there's yeah because there's way more money and stability in it um love because that. love that unless you have the thing is like these days it's very hard to make a living as a songwriter or a performer um, unless you're just touring constantly and you're at a level of popularity where you're getting paid enough to do it. But as soon as you're off the road, you're not making any money yeah. and physical, you know, people aren't buying CDs anymore. There's not, you know, used to be able, in the nineties, I think maybe early two thousands was the end of people making a lot of money off of physical sales. And so there's just not much money in it. And if you, I've read lots of stories about Nashville songwriters who are like, you know, they're writing songs every day and having other people perform them and then they get royalties even the biggest hit songs don't sustain you for more than a month or two in terms of money. Like it's just so low now. And so most of uh, a lot of those songwriters really want to be composers as well, or I should say people in bands, that kind of thing in general, they're like, maybe I could compose. Maybe there's more work there. Yeah. Um, it's actually a very different skill set, which took me some time to learn the difference, yes. but, you know, um, when I was younger, but it, it is possible for sure for them. But uh, no, I, I find value in it. And I really like collaborating, like I said, with directors and people trying to make something. And I'm basically trying to tell their story, but using my tools and using, you know, just the just music and audio. I love that. I, and one of the stories that I think of in my mind as I was growing up, my, Barry Manilow wrote mm-hmm. all those jingles. Everyone knows the jingles he wrote. But I, if I had 100 people in a room, only half of them might know the songs that Barry Manilow is famous for, right? I mean, that's just the way it works. <laughs> and it's the things that you do that are just impact the world that people don't even know you've done. And and, and you're doing that. And that's kind of cool. So oh, quick. So here now we talked a little bit before the show. You're in Bath, Ohio now. So you've moved from L.A. where everyone's making music and being stars and doing things with musicians. Now you're in Bath and there's like three musicians in Bath. I'm just kidding. It, 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 this isn't the Mecca. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about what you're doing next and, and what you're trying to accomplish uh, in your career. Yeah. So after being in L.A. for 20 years and getting through COVID and kind of recovering from that lull in work and yeah. just seeing how everybody is working on Zoom, everybody's working remotely. And I had actually been working remotely, even though I was in Los Angeles and my studio was in L.A. Um, I'd been you know working remotely for like 13 years at that point. Um, nobody wanted to drive across town to go to meetings or whatever, you know, everyone's like, just email me. Why do I, you know, we don't need to meet in person. And even when I was still working at my uncle's studio, he had an amazing studio on sunset strip and it was like really a cool place to visit, but people were coming less and less. And it was mm-hmm. just, that was sort of the way things were headed. And then with the pandemic, it really, you know, went even further that way into just everybody meeting on zoom or whatever. And it just felt like, okay, if we're going to, 
um, leave Los Angeles. This is the time to do it. And my wife was definitely ready to come back here. She has a lot of family in this area. I still have family back here as well. And we have a lot of friends, but <clears throat> excuse me, but, um, uh, what was I saying? It seemed like it was time to make the jump. And I, after 20 years there, you know, my career was going well at my most, some of my clients are in Los Angeles, but plenty of them are in Austin or London or Denmark or, you know, all over. So that it wasn't so, uh, location specific. And I was like, I feel like this is the time to make the jump. People are spreading out all over the country, moving to more rural places to work from. And I was kind of scared about it, but, um, but I knew I also had a good support system here and, you know, we sold our house in LA and with that money, uh, able to buy an amazing place here, oh, yeah. beautiful, you know, next to a national park. And I'm building a brand new big recording studio to work out of. Um, so I can, you know, we're all keep doing it. I have a temporary studio now that works and it's okay, but I'm building a brand new facility and, you know, I never would have been able to afford that much space in Los Angeles. So to be able to do that is going to be amazing. We break ground like literally this month. And so, um, you know, I have a huge tracking room. I can do giant drum sounds and strings and things like that. And, oh, I know what I was, the other thing I was going to say is this area is, was a good choice or fortunate because there, there is a lot of music here. And there's also, um, I work a lot with orchestral players. I write a lot of orchestral music and the Cleveland orchestra is one of the top in the country, maybe even in the, the world. world. Yeah. 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 Um, and there's also the Akron symphony orchestra and my, uh, my hope is to work with those players uh, on my sessions, you know, for film and TV and stuff like that. And I'm guessing they probably don't get to do a lot of that here because there's not as much of that going on. So hopefully they'll be into it. <laughs> yeah. So what are you, what are you afraid of? I remember when you left your studio uh, mm -hmm. and, and went off on your own, there was severe pressure and COVID came and shut down things. And there was severe pressure that you overcame. And now you're here with a new start. And when, and I'll be honest, when I was listening to you, man, you're going to build a big studio and you've got the thing and you've got the stuff and the house and everything's great, but it's got to be something. I know there is that is driving you that you're like, man, I hope this works. Like where's, where's the pressure coming for you next? You know, it's interesting. I think people would look at my career and what I've done or, or anyone that's been doing it for a while and just assume like, oh, you've made it. There's nothing to worry about. But it's very much like any other job where if, if you, you don't go or it stops happening, like it, it's over. You know, it could end any minute. If I don't keep hustling and getting that work, it's over. I'm unemployed and it doesn't matter how many awards you win or big name, whatever. That doesn't mean there's a steady paycheck coming every day. So. Um, the fear is that, you know, if it does dry up, um, there's a little bit of, there was always a stigma of leaving Los Angeles for mm -hmm. people in the entertainment industry of like, unless you're going to like New York or Nashville right. or somewhere else, like, oh, you've given up, you're done, you know, you're, you're retiring or something. Um, and so I was worried about that. I think that's less the case now because of COVID and like the things we talked about people spreading out and whatever. So I'm less worried about that. I'm more worried about things like, uh, that writer strike that's, that kills a lot of work that just ended. Thankfully it's over yeah. AI people using AI to create music. Um, that's going to kill a lot of jobs for composers, um, because mm -hmm. you can create, well, you know, music that sounds pretty good. Yeah. It's not really what a composer does, but if you just need boring background music for, for whatever, and you don't really have a, maybe that much interest or, insight into music, um, you know, it'll be good enough for you. And I think AI is going to be a real problem. Hopefully I can figure out a way to, you know, benefit from it and make it a, a partner rather than a enemy, but there's just always pressure. There's always being self-employed 
there's um, there's just a ton of pressure to always keep it going. You're, you're basically just inventing your career every day over and over every again. Yeah. But I will say, I mean, the alternative is you can work at a company and be laid off at any time. You know, it can seem like a very stable corporate environment. And, uh, you know, layoffs happen every year. Well, more than that, even. So you, you pick and choose your battles, I guess. Yeah, yeah, you do. And, and I'm interested as we kind of wrap up. There are people out there listening now that have this dream inside of them that they haven't capitalized on for whatever reason, fear or stability or opportunity or just doubt, whatever it might be, but yet they wanted to do it. You wanted to be a musician and you were going to figure out a way to be a musician. They're stuck in that corporate job or they're afraid to take a step. Mm -hmm. If they've got it deep inside them and yet the, the opportunity, the path doesn't seem to be there, what would you say to them? How would you advise them to make the next step? I think that's a case by case basis. And I do talk to people that want to do it or are in varying stages of doing it, um, becoming composer or trying to. And I do give personalized advice to people. If they want to reach out, I'm, I'm happy to talk to them, but I think it's dangerous to just give blanket statements or blanket encouragement and just be like, follow your dreams. Because you know what? It's not that easy. Just cause you want it doesn't mean it's going to happen. Um, but I do think there are concrete steps that people can take. Um, to bring them closer and to, you know, get them at least maybe close enough to see, is this something I want to do and get them a little bit more into the reality of what it is and give them an idea rather than it just being a fantasy of, you know, like a rock star fantasy. I love that advice because, you know, Silas, you could have said the opposite. You could have said, follow your dreams, follow your goals. And there's a hundred books out there that I could put my hands on right now that say the same thing. Go, 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 go. And yet you're telling folks, look, it's not, it's, it's not as easy as people make it out to be. It's not as easy <laughs> yeah. as you want it to be. Um, be careful is kind of what you're, you're saying. Not to give everybody, up, be careful. Everybody wants to hear, just follow your dreams, go for it. I know yeah, that's right? what everyone wants to hear, but that's, I feel like it's irresponsible to just say that. Yeah. It's all, also irresponsible to hold back. And I, I love what you just said. Like, I'd like to give personalized advice. Um, and is that something you do? In fact, as we wrap up, if someone wanted to reach out to you, perhaps as a songwriter, perhaps to help them with their business or whatever they might be doing in their music world, uh, or even just to learn about mm -hmm. entrepreneurism and ideas and goals. Are you well, open to that? Would you like people to reach out to you? Yeah, I'm definitely open to it. Um, I, I do speak at colleges and universities around the country because I do like to encourage college kids and give them a, an idea of, you know, the reality of what they're getting into rather than just studying it in this abstract way. Um, but I do talk to people all the time and you can, you can either find me on social media or email me. And if it's, you know, if it's something short, I'm happy to just chat with you. And if you have more in depth questions and like need some guidance or whatever, I do offer that as well. Um, and so, yeah, people can reach out. My website is silasheight.com. And if you Google my name, you'll find me on you know all the social medias and stuff. Fortunately, it's a pretty unique name. So, Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing the information and opening up. I love the idea that there are so many opportunities within. I, I'll tell you this. I tell oh. my boys. I tell my boys when they were growing up. If you, my, my son is 5'9", but he loved basketball. I said, you know, son, if you want to be basketball, you're probably never going to dunk a ball. You're probably never, maybe even going to make the NBA. But just set that as your star. Go be in basketball and let people find your way. Like find people that will help show you there's so many different things that you can do and be involved. And I think it's the same way in music. I want to be Bruce Springsteen, but man, I can be a pretty good roadie 
or I could be, uh, you know, a, an agent or I can do different things. And I love that, uh, that you're kind of showing people that that can be done. And I, and I appreciate that you're killing it in that foundational world of the arts. Thank you. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for sharing the short, the, the story. And thanks for being a part of the show. That is Silas Height. Folks, he's a Emmy winner. We've, we, we don't get too many Emmy winners on the Purpose Under Pressure podcast. And that's the other thing I was going to tell Silas before uh, before we said goodbye, is that winning awards might be a, a not the goal. But you know when When you've won one, be proud of it. Pat yourself on the back because no one else did. And I think that's important that uh, that you're able to say, I mean, I used to do school board stuff. And one of the greatest thrills that I would have would be talking with state state winners of either music or sports or whatever it might be because you've accomplished something and someone's willing to tell you that you did. So I think that's pretty cool as well. That is Silas Hyde. He is our guest on Purpose Under Pressure. You can find him on his website and you uh, can uh, take a listen to this podcast and others again with his his cousin as well um, on this program. Al Mothersbaugh has been a part of this too. This whole show is brought to you uh, in partnership with Sandler by the Ruby Group. Sellers are under pressure to perform. Sandler helps you succeed on purpose. Please reach out to Mike Jones, Ken Guest, and the team and find out what you can find out about Sandler. You'll find all the past episodes of Purpose Under Pressure at brianmediastrategies.com slash podcast and wherever you stream your podcasts. We do this every week. We'll see you next time, maybe not with an Emmy winner, but with someone just as uh, helpful with you in finding your purpose under pressure. See you next week. 